The following conversation is an audible archive recorded with Ruth Walker, March 7th, 2017. This archive is divided into two parts. The first hour is Ruth's life story. At an hour and four minutes, we open up a discussion about philosophy, the nature of reality, and our human experience. So I'd like to start with just your given full name when you were born, when you were born, and then your earliest memory. Uh, my name, my main name is Ruth Beatrice Tenenbaum uh, Druckmann. I was born in Chile, in the southern part of Chile, in an island. The island is called Chiloé, and it is a famous island for Chileans because many storytellers and uh, mystical people come from there. There is something about the island that uh, seems to promote those outputs. Uh, my, my parents came from Europe in 1939 with my older sister, who was a little, who was a toddler at the time. My father was given the opportunity of getting some land in, in the south and developing it. He had all his life loved nature and the land because his father was a lumber uh, person and he, he had taken him, him and his brother on, on many, many jobs in different mountains. And uh, he developed a great love for nature that he kept all his life. So he jumped at that opportunity, although it, they didn't need to do that. My mother would have wanted to have stayed in the city, but my father prevailed. So there they went, they got a very nice farm and uh, they developed it. And they managed to live there less than two years because my father suddenly developed asthma and it was so bad, so bad, that the doctors told him that if he didn't leave in less than a week, he would be dead. So they had to abandon all what they had and leave. And of course, they had no money because all the money they had invested in enriching that farm. So they left a friend in charge of trying to sell it. And this was in, on the island in Chile? Yes. And they moved further north, still south of Santiago, the capital, but north, a good chunk north of Chiloé. And I was a baby, maybe nine months old. I don't remember anything. My sister must have, was, uh, let me think, five years old. And here we have a couple with the husband barely breathing my mother and two little children and almost no money. And they got to this city, which was a small city, and they decided that they couldn't go in anymore. And they got off the train and they found a, 
a house that was renting rooms and they rented a room with cooking privileges and my mother had just one dish and one set of silverware she had just packed very very uh, the basics uh, they made themselves believe like like if they were well-to-do people and they were believed and they kept on saying our luggage and all our belongings will be coming soon and then we will have to move into a house but in the meantime this is good enough for us because we have nothing to put into a house and this way two weeks passed by and my father started to be able to breathe again and he realized that if he didn't do something soon they would be in the street and they would die from starvation there was no family in the country there were no friends in there and there was very very little money left so my father got up from bed and went to look at the at the town and he saw that it seemed to be a, a, a prosperous little town and he walked into a store that sold fabrics and he introduced himself to the owner which by the way was an Arab his uh, last name was Lamas and he said I am new in town I'm trying to make a living here and uh, I would like to buy some fabrics from you and try to sell them in the surrounding areas of the city all my money was invested in my land so I'm waiting for for the money of the sale of the land so I do have money but not with me if you trust me with this merchandise I will make it worth your while and they shook hands and my father left with his pack of fabrics and went around in the more rural part of the of the town and sold everything so he came back and told the guy I'm paying you for everything you trusted me with and now I want more and he was a little bit more specific about what he wanted and so it went for a while to the point where he and my mother decided that they could maybe open up a little store and they could get credit to put it together and so they did and they became very prosperous and those are my first recollections the recollections of the store which was in the main street of the city in our house which was right next to it on a second story and I remember I remember it very vaguely I remember my mother wanted to put a thermometer on my tush to check my temperature and that I was running and crying I also remember a nanny I had who cooked very wonderfully and who also took my sister to school and I would go with her every day to take my sister to school and I remember one time that uh, a beggar came into the store and I don't know why I was there and I don't know what my parents were doing but I opened the cash register and gave him something obviously it was not something only it was a lot because I got a real good beating afterwards when I told the story of what I had done and I remember I had a good friend in the town that lived around the main square of the city which would have been one or two blocks from our store and 
Her father would give us candy from the store, and we used to play together. And the other thing I remember is that across from my father's store, there was a shoe store. And one time I almost was run over because I, they used to give me little shoe boxes. So I, I, I started running across the street and I didn't look at the street and there was a, a taxi, the one taxi in the town. He put his brakes and saved my life, but I could, for all practical purposes, I might have not been telling you the story today. And I'm going to jump now like uh, 60 years from then <laughs> because I always remembered that little town. Uh, we left shortly after I came back one day from taking my sister to school. Was she older or younger? She was older. She was born in Europe. She's four and a half years older than I am. And um, the maid, the nanny, took me to ch- would take me to church. I, I, what did I know about church? I was maybe four at the time, three or four. And I came back one day and I said to my mom, Mom, why don't you ever take me? to see the beautiful little saints in church. And my mother got totally alarmed. She came from a very religious and traditional family in Europe. And she said to my father, we are leaving. There are no Jews here. The children need to have a Jewish community around them. And so my father went to the capital, Santiago, to see what possibilities there were there. And he came back and he said, we can move. And we moved. And that move was in a car he had. He always had a car. My father always had a car. And in the car, he was driving. He had a mechanic with him in the car in case that there would be any problems. And I remember because it was like something that was so important. It made such an impact for me. Stopping for lunch by some water and it was a waterfall and for a little kid like me I thought that that was the greatest thing in the world and all my life I wanted to see it again and I never did till about till I was in my 60s when I went to visit with my husband we went to visit my sister and she and her husband we, we made a trip together they took us to the city where I had lived as a little child. And I was able to recognize the main street where our house was. And my sister was able to remember the name of the mother of the men that extended credit to my father for the first time. And she was still alive and she visited her. To get there, we had to stop at that beautiful waterfall and we almost 60 years later they had built a hotel right next to it so we we spent the night there and i i I, it was a very important emotional point in my life to come full circle and to see that part of my childhood so we moved to santiago how old were you when you moved to santiago i was maybe four I was four. I was four. What did your father do with the with the business? He sold it, and he he went into partnership with another Jewish man in Santiago. He went into partnership and he started a tailor shop. 
And you guys went to Santiago because there was a Jewish community there. Yes, the main city in the country, and uh, yes. What was it like for you and your sister? Did you guys have fun together when you were in Santiago? Well, my mother used to take us once a week to a department store, the only department store at the time in, in, in Santiago, which I loved because it had uh, uh, one of those... Uh, automatic escalators yeah. or the mechanical escalators and that was something so fantastic for me it was like a miracle like magic and once a week they had tea time a tea time program for children so she took us every week to that program we heard music there were clowns it was delicious food tea time food and um I liked all of that. When you think about your parents at this time, do you what kind of feeling do you get? My mother was always a very happy person, uh, a wonderful cook, very loving, very affectionate. And my father was by far more involved in his things than with us. I wouldn't say that he was the best family man. And your sister? We quarreled all the time. We were terrible with each other, terrible. Until I came to the United States, we quarreled. So we quarreled for the first 24 years of our lives. <laughs> what were the quarrels usually about? Well, she would never lend me any of her things. She was the oldest one. And I always wanted to have something of hers. Also, um, in different stages of life, we quarreled about different things. We were very different. I loved to read. She didn't care. I didn't care for makeup or clothes. Those were terribly important to her. Um, when her friends came, sometimes I would be around. I didn't realize at the time that I was a nuisance. But I loved people and I liked to talk. And some of her friends were uh, interesting. I especially remember one friend who who was very intellectual and I was more of an intellectual person. My sister was not and has never been and she wanted me to go away and I wanted to stay. And then when we started going to Zionist youth groups, I was very young and I couldn't go, but uh, I would make such a fuss that my mother would tell her, if you want to go, you need to take your little sister and say that you had to take care of her. So now I realize why she hated me, the way she hated me. Mm -hmm. But nowadays we, we get along very well. The day I left, our war stopped. So what was, it, what was your time like when you were in school at this age? I went to a Hebrew day school. It was probably one of the most difficult and the best schools in the in the country. And I suspect that I was an ADD person. I had a really hard time sitting and uh, just sitting and listening. I kind of needed to move around. I never said bad words. I was never fresh to the teachers, but I needed to move around. I, focusing for for uh, 45 minutes, which was the school hour, was too much for me. Did you have a focus or like any interests? Really, not much. I I never 
care to be an excellent student or anything like that. My poor mother suffered because she wanted me to be a good student. I passed, but I passed. I didn't care to have A's. That was not important to me. Perhaps in my junior year, I started developing some interests. I started enjoying English as a foreign language, psychology and philosophy I enjoyed. I even enjoyed chemistry. In those, I did real well, and in the rest, I was very average. What did you, what did you spend your free time doing? Well, I belonged to a Zionist youth organization, and I was very committed to it. We were very serious about Israel. We, in, in that organization, we were taught singing, Israeli singing and dancing, and we also had lectures about different things. It opened a new world for me, uh, that organization, because it responded to some of the needs I didn't know I had. But I was very interested in the lectures they gave, and I loved the music and the dancing, and I began developing an interest in classical music, which has stayed with me and has become stronger as, as, as I have aged. And that was my life. That was what mattered to me. I was sure I was going to go to Israel after I finished high school. I, it was not in the plan that I would go to college. So after I finished high school, everyone took an exam, which is like a baccalaureate exam. And I did very average. This exam in those days had five components, five different topics. And I did the minimum. I mean, I just didn't care. It was just to satisfy my dad, who thought that education was the most important thing. My mom wanted us girls to get married. My dad wanted us to be educated because he kept on saying, if you have to run away, then you will have your education. That no one can take away from you. So it was based on his own life experiences that whatever he knew or what have you uh, was not enough to really make him become settled for life when he moved from one country to the other. I must say, by the way, that my dad got to Chile from a country that's where another language was spoken, and he picked up Spanish within a week's time. Uh, he was um, talking within two weeks to people and communicating. He had an uncanny ability for languages, and he had come to Chile when he was in his mid-30s. He had almost no accent, which is most unusual at that age. On the other hand, my mom had a tremendous accent, and never spoke Spanish as well as my dad. Of course, she communicated in the language, but with, uh, with us children, um, she uh, preferred to speak in German and sometimes in Yiddish. She talked to us like that, and we answered in Spanish always. So what was it, when, what was it that made you decide to go to college then? Well, as I told you, I took my baccalaureate exam, and I was in a group in the Zionist youth group it, we were the next group to to go to to Israel, but for and before doing that, to have a year training in a farm because we were going to go to a kibbutz. So my group moved to the farm as the other group left for Israel, 
then we started working the fields and there were some animals and what have you. What are some highlights from that experience? Well, we felt like a little family and uh, we were very close, I thought. And that's where I learned to smoke. I always hated smoking before, but everyone smoked. I was the only one that didn't smoke. And there was a lot of social pressure. And I started, I thought it was awful tasting. And uh, then I got used to it. And then I became hooked. And it took me almost 50 years to give it up. So things got I'm out of that. Um, what would you say were some of the, I guess, the principles or the the life lessons that your parents tried to bestow upon you well, in terms of in terms of dating or romance or in terms of goals or aspirations? My father wanted us to be educated. We were three kids. I have a younger brother also, a brother that is a lot younger than me. He wanted us to be well-educated. That was first and foremost. My mother didn't mind that we would be educated, but she wanted us to, to meet young men that would be good husbands and she wanted us to get married she came from europe with the idea that that's what a woman does but she also was a very kind and honest person so she always waited for us when when we were out of the house in the evenings and when we came home no matter what time it was her light her nightstand light would turn on and she would want to hear where we went, what we did. She was genuinely interested. It wasn't a gossipy way. She just enjoyed that. As I told you, she was a very affectionate person and she would have given her life for her children. But I have to mention someone else that uh, you wouldn't even think of asking me about because it's not the custom of America. We had a nanny that came with us from that smaller city she was young when she came with us. She was maybe 16 or 17. Her father worked in a, had worked all his life in, in a very, very large farm that produced apples. Uh, some of the apples that we eat today may be coming from there. And he, he had, his first wife had died and my nanny was a daughter of that first wife. And then he married again. So. There were many kids, and she had to be put into working into domestic service. But my mother always said, I promised him that I would take care of her all my life, and that's what I am going to do. So the few times that she wasn't well, she took care of her. Uh, she went to the hospital. She brought, brought her food from home so she wouldn't have to eat the bad food in the hospital. And she never married. She Her life was my family. She devoted her life to our family and we all loved her with passion, all of us. From my mother, my father, my father paid more attention to her than to my mom. My sister trusted her with the keys of her closet so that I wouldn't get into it, but she loaned me the clothes provided that I would come back before my sister was supposed to come back. My little brother, loved her like a mother because she she poured all her maternal affection on him. And if we were sick, she was the one that stayed with us at night and took care of us. So until today, I had two mothers. 
What's her uh, name? Christy. We called her Christy. And did she stay with your parents? She stayed with my parents. Both my parents died. She cl- she washed both my parents, put them in a coffin. Then she went and lived with my sister for several years. She she raised my sister's children. She raised partly raised my brother's daughter. My children no, because we just I just would take them for a couple of weeks uh, every other year. But I loved her till she died, and I think of her many times. To me, she is family. So, so she also insti- instilled in us, she was the best example of goodness I've ever known in life. She was good to everyone, and she was generous to everyone. Uh, my mother was a very honest person, and she gave of herself what she didn't have, and always anonymously, because she said that that was the Jewish way, not to not to be putting your name into something, whatever she had, she gave anonymously. Mitzvah. Yes. My father, um, what did I learn from my father? He was wonderful with his hands. He he built things. If he had uh, not been born where he was born and not in the kind of environment where he was born, he probably would have become an artist. He could draw. He he had creativity. Um, one day he was he was in his car and he passed by uh, uh, an area where they had just were demolishing a building, and he saw that there were some uh, copper leaves that they had taken out. So they gave him those because they were trash. So he brought them to his home and he worked with his hands, with hammer and chisel and got them flat and like with some relief in them and put them all around the fireplace. And it was stunning to see what he had done. He loved animals. So there were always dogs in the house. My mother hated uh, dogs. She said that they were trefe. <laughs> so she, she wouldn't touch the dogs. So we, we couldn't bring the dogs inside the house. That was a no-no as long as my mother lived. But then he loved birds also. So I remember we lived in a condo which had a very, very small space uh, backyard which was shared by all the neighbors. So we had two canaries in a cage and they lived in the same room that my nanny lived. She didn't mind it. And they sang nicely. But then my parents moved into a house that had more of a land and there was a back in the in the back of the house there was a big tree so my father conceived of the idea that that was the ideal area for raising birds he had the tree cut down but not completely he wanted to keep part of the tree so that it would serve as a stand for for birds and he built like a birdhouse that was ooh at least 10, 12 feet long, and maybe five feet wide. And uh, when I went to see them, he had over a hundred canaries there. 
and he fed them every day. He was the only one that got into into the birdcage. But he loved Naomi, and my Naomi was so little and fragile, and she was so sweet as a little child, that my father, that is like the greatest show of love, he allowed her to come in with him huh. uh, one day and with to help birds. feed the birds. It was so nice. And then he had drapes made for the for the, for putting around that cage so that the cats wouldn't try to wouldn't scare the animals um and when my mom died he had two dogs in the house and he had them inside the house and i saw him feed them with his own spoon everything ice cream and what have you that was his passion to have his animals around him. They would follow him and he would start feeding them and then they became his animals. <laughs> yes. That's cool. Yes. So how, how old were you when you went to college? Well, I finished high school at age 16. I didn't tell you the rest of the story. The rest of the story about living in a farm with my Zionist youth group. I got, oh, re- yeah, yeah. I got real sick. I had problems with my liver and my gallbladder I believe or pancreas I don't really remember but the doctor said that I needed total rest and that I needed a very 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 strict diet and those things I couldn't have in the farm so my mother says you have to come home and get well because if you're going to go to Israel you need to go in good condition so I came home and I was very depressed and very bored because my life had been my Zionist youth group. I, I became very depressed because my my comrades, so to speak, came to visit me almost never. And I started thinking, how can this be? It's happening here in this country where I have support. How am I going to go to Israel with a group that pretty much ignores me? So after a few months, I made the decision of leaving the farm and leaving that organization that had been my life for years. And that was very hard. Uh, then I was 17. So I decided, well, what else can I do? I'm going to go study. So I prepared myself again to take the baccalaureate exam. It's like an SAT or something like that. And this time I was by far more motivated to do better because I knew that with my scores, I wasn't going even into the door of a, of a university. And you see, differently from here, in contrast with the United States, in those days in particular, I think we had three universities in the country. So if, if there was one place, for each place available, there must have been a thousand or more applicants. Also, not everyone could go because many people were not didn't have the money although it wasn't expensive they didn't they they couldn't afford paying that and not working and uh, for those that were from outside Santiago unless they got a scholarship and there were very 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 few scholarships they couldn't afford living uh, on their own or anything like that plus the fact that that's not the way of the country you live with your parents till you marry mm-hmm. so I did very well when I took the baccalaureate again and I got accepted and the following year I started University of Chile. It was the largest, it was a wonderful Did you stay school. with your parents when you were going? Of course. I mean, it, it would have been unthinkable 
Yeah. What were some of the things you did for fun? Well, we went to movies. We went to like excursions. Uh, Chile is such a beautiful country. You just don't have to go very far to find beautiful places. So we would go sometimes and go to different areas around Santiago that were very pretty. When the weather was summer, sometimes we went to the beach. We would we would uh, stay together three, four in a room so that we could afford the hotel and we stayed a day or two. We made parties. Uh, we visited each other often. There were lots of things to do. And we talked. We uh, Chilean youth in my days loved, I think that today probably too, talked a great deal. We're basically very good communicators. And that was as much fun as going to a movie or to a party or what have you. And some of those conversations were very serious conversations. We were serious people in the sense that we were committed to serious things of life. Uh, we, we had big discussions. We were interested in politics. You have to think that Chile is a country that is at the end of the world. And we looked up to the world because we were so isolated. So whatever happened in the world was really important to us because we were separated from the world by enormous mountains and the sea. So on top of being all the way in the south, it was not easy to get out of there. So uh, yes, this is very much part of the Hispanic temperament to, to have serious discussions. I, I When I came to this country, I thought that people were very immature huh. and very superficial because the youth in my country was very different. When did you come to the this country, America? I, in 1965. What brought you here? A scholarship to start to do graduate work. Graduate work in what field? In counseling. Okay. And were you nervous about before making the decision to come? No, I was excited. I got actually two scholarships. One was this scholarship, and then I got a scholarship to go and study in Israel to become a Hebrew teacher. And I decided to come here. I did because I because I knew a lot about Israel, but I didn't know much about America, and it seemed very exotic. And when you got here, where did you go to? I studied in a little town called Mansi in Indiana, uh, in a university called Ball State University. How did you adapt to the new culture? I hated the food in the in the in in the university. I made good friends, so I was never lonely during that time. But I did think that the people were incredibly naive. This was the beginning of the Vietnam War. And the people didn't care about Vietnam. They didn't know much about it. They were not concerned in, the, in, the, in 1965, they were not. But we already in Chile had been hearing about Vietnam a little bit. So I didn't understand that. How did you meet your husband? Ah, uh, that's a story. When I got a scholarship, my mother was in Israel visiting family. And when I wrote her a letter saying that I was coming to, to the States, her sister said, oh, we are going to go and talk to so-and-so because his sister is in the States and she will take care of Ruth. Because to our family, it was unthinkable to let one person alone go anywhere. 
very protective, very protective. And my, my, my mother's family in particular was extremely conservative when it came to... Uh, in Chile, I was able to go out anywhere I wanted to with whoever I wanted to and come back at any time I wanted to. I was totally trusted by my parents. But the idea of going to another country or going to another city to live or what have you was uh, scary. So my mother's sister wrote to this, no, went to, to, to this uh, man who had a sister in the States. And this man, he was a political nephew of hers. She had married a man who was part of that family. And that was Ben's mother's family. So my mother wrote that she was coming back to Chile. I, this was about a month before I was coming here. And she came, and maybe a few days after she came, a letter came from the States from someone, Walker. And, oh, my mother was so excited. She, I asked, who's this Walker? And she said, I'll tell you afterwards. We had a custom that when letters came from overseas, my sister and I particularly were always very interested in hearing what the letter was because we didn't have any relatives whatsoever. No one, zero family in Chile. So for us, the family was the letters that we received. So my mother, she read it. It was in Yiddish, and she read it, and we understood. And this was Ben's mother, that they had known each other as children, as youngsters. They lived in the same town and everything. And she said, of course, I will be happy to help your daughter in whatever way I can. And she lived in Florida. And when I left, I knew I was coming to Florida. So my mother says, you make sure you call her. And I did call her, and she, she sounded real nice by the phone and uh, asked me to please send her my address in the States as soon as I knew it. And I, I said, we talked a little bit, then I said goodbye. And I was very kind of hurt that she hadn't thought of coming to see me in the airport. What did I know that Orlando and Miami are not just around the corner? So... That's the way it was. I sent her a little note when when I got settled in, in, in Muncie, and then a letter came from Syracuse, and it said, Welcome to the USA, and that was Ben. His mom had said, We have a far away cousin or something, I mean, you know, because I, of the relationship. Write to her because she's alone. And then he told her, he told him, She's a doctor of philosophy. <laughs> I am not a doctor of philosophy. I had a major of philosophy as an undergraduate, but no doctor. So Ben thought, who is this old woman that my mother is making me try? But he was, he's friendly to people. So he, he got in touch and he wrote me and I wrote him back and then he called me and we started talking on the phone every so often. And then his mother invited me for Christmas to Orlando. And I went to Orlando and I, I met him. And we didn't like each other, actually, <laughs> at the beginning. But then as we talked and we talked, we saw how much more in common we had. And that's the way I met my husband. Why, why did you all keep talking if you didn't like each other? No, I didn't know that we didn't. We, it was okay when we talked. I didn't like when I saw him and he wanted me to do this or this or this or that. He didn't get along very well with his mom and... He, I didn't think he talked always so nicely to her, and to me that was a no-no. I was 
very close to my mother. Very, very close to my mom. So when you physically met him, you weren't you weren't impressed no, by his behavior. No, 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 no. And what? I I don't I think he thought that I was very unattractive. So none of us liked each other. And <laughs> the first thing he said to me was he had a girlfriend. But then came a New Year's party in Tampa, and he took me, and I had a great time because uh, he he fixed me with some of his friends, and he didn't have such a good time because his girlfriend, I think, had dumped him or something or something. Okay, so it was just one of those things. Uh-huh. That's the way we met, and then we started falling in love. Uh, well, how did that? How did that shift from wondering who this guy was to maybe I actually care about him? By talking, we had so much in common. We had a love of Israel in common. We have languages in common. We had traditions in common. We had family that we knew about in common. I didn't know any one of his family, but he knew a lot of my family because he was in Israel and my family was in Israel. So they. When he was there, he had very superficially met them. So there was, and I had never met them, so I was very curious. I always wanted to know about the cousins I had, the aunts and uncles I had, you know, so. So what was it like when, when y'all got closer to deciding to get married? What was it like? Well, I had a scholarship. I was about, I was going to be finished with my studies. Then... Somehow, I had gotten in touch with Berkeley, and there was a possibility that I might go to Berkeley for a PhD, or that I would come back to to the to Chile. So I he came to visit me in Indiana, and I said to him, "You know, either we get married, or we say goodbye to each other because I'm not going to stay here." Uh, and how'd you know you wanted to get married? At that point, we already were committed. Yeah, we were committed. I had gone to visit him before, and we had continued being in touch by phone and by letters. And he was um, 30, 31, 30, 31, and I was uh, 24, 25. And we were not little kids anymore. We were naive, I guess, maybe, but we felt comfortable with each other. Uh, and we took a chance, of course, but we've been married 50 years. Huh. So how how's that experience been from the beginning? At the beginning, it was hard. I think that the, the beginning of any marriage is very hard to get used to living with someone else in a more intimate and on on a day-to-day basis when you look good, when you don't look good. Because I went to live with him in Syracuse, which because that's where he was studying. And I knew no one, not a soul. And then I became pregnant very quickly after after our marriage. And I didn't even know how to prepare for a birth, for, for a child coming to Your us. Your mom was still in Chile too, yeah. Yes, and, and, and I never changed a baby's diaper. I didn't know what clothes to buy. I didn't know anything. And they didn't have television shows about maternity and I things like that? I never was much of a television person. And I don't think we had a TV for the longest time. So essentially the information, though, of what it's like to be pregnant and, well, a, and to be a... a... A friend of his recommended a physician. So that was the first thing. And then Were you scared? A little bit. I didn't want to suffer. I used to always say that I was going to adopt. 
because I didn't want to go through pain. And then somehow we met a couple and she had two boys and she said, you have nothing for the baby? I'm taking you shopping. You need to be prepared. And she took me and we bought the most essential things for a newborn. Also, we didn't have any money. And Ben was there with a with an assistantship. So we had to live. But you know something? We had little money, but I think we lived better than even today. We always had people over on the weekends. Sometimes 10 people, whatever. We had wonderful, wonderful parties. Lots of people from all over the world. Uh, we lived in a basement apartment. On Saturday, I think, or Sunday, we went and we did the shopping for the week. And there was, I remember, a wonderful bakery that we always stopped and bought the most delicious sweets. And we had a wonderful life. And then you had a kid. And then I had Ronit. How'd that go? It's the most glorious moment of my life. What do you remember about it? I suffered a great deal. <laughs> I was in labor for over a day. Mm -hmm. It was very painful. But I remember the joy I felt with this child. She was so adorable. Uh, it was just so natural to have her. She filled my life. And Ben was crazy about her too. Ben was the first one that cut her fingernails. He was the first one in changing her diaper. Um, the first one in giving her a, a bath. Uh, he would take her with him in his car, in a, in a bassinet. He was crazy about Ronnie. never stopped being crazy about her all his life. She was, I called her the philosopher because she would, she would move with her arms and kind of raise her head and look around like this, like if she was in deep thought. So I used to call her the philosopher. Very observant. Yes. And she, she, she was smart from day one, I think. Uh, and we had a, a speaker installed in her room so she could listen to classical music uh, and develop a love, but she didn't because when, when I had the classical music in my car when she was a little girl, she would say, please, mommy, change the station because I get a headache with that music. <laughs> <laughs> so there goes my trying. Anyhow, that is... I think that was the most beautiful moment of my life when she was born. How did it change your perspective? Well, I, I had a responsibility for a little human being that was totally helpless, but made me very happy, made me mature. Responsibility makes you always mature. How soon after was Naomi born? Uh, she was born a little bit less than two years after. And that changed us again. How so? Because Nami was sick from day one. And uh, I had to spend enormous amounts of time with her. And Ronit was a little child. How can I make a, a toddler understand that her little sister requires all that time? So Ronit was suffering. I, I got impatient. And, and both Ben and I worked for a Jewish day school. And... Ben couldn't help me at all, pretty much, because he was gone all the time. And after a few weeks that I had her, uh, she had already been in the hospital once or twice. 
Um, I found a very, very good babysitter, and she took good care of, of uh, Naomi when I was working. Where were you working at? At the Hebrew Day School. Oh, with Ben? Yeah. Yeah. So how did you make sense of what was going on with Naomi? I didn't. I kept on saying something. And the doctor would tell me, don't compare your daughters. Each child is different. But she kept on getting sick. So I started, I've quarreled with the doctors. And I went through every single doctor that lived. We lived in Chattanooga in those days. Every single doctor that lived in, a pediatrician that was in Chattanooga, I took Naomi. How did you, how did you afford that? Because we always put our kids before us. So we didn't have many clothes. We didn't have uh, good cars. The children came first. So whatever, that was, that was number one. So not one of them could tell me anything. And then I went to Chile even, and I took her to a famous pediatrician there. He said to me, you know, your child may be mentally challenged because she's very small and his, her head is small for a child her age. And I said to him, you're wrong. I know she's not mentally challenged. And I came back and we would go to the hospital. We would bring her back and that evening she would develop a fever or something. And that was the life. Those first two years were terrible. Terrible. And then we moved to Atlanta. And then she started passing out. And that was even worse. And, well, I made the decision that Naomi came first. Because I was going to save her, her life. And she was diagnosed with her condition when she was a little bit less than two years. We were so desperate, I had come back already to the original doctor. And he said, you know what? I'm going to send you to Atlanta, to, to Eggleston Hospital, which is a specialized hospital for children. They have big specialists there. Maybe they'll know what this is. And since we had the running of the school, and I didn't drive much less in the highway, Ben took off and brought Naomi by himself, and I stayed there with Ronit. And when he came back that same day, he said to me, they asked me the strangest questions. They asked me if she shed tears when she cried, if we had an Ashkenazi background, and a couple of other things. Uh, so I said to him, I bet you they know what Naomi has. And that was maybe a Wednesday or a Tuesday, and. On Friday, I came by myself to Emory, not to Eggleston, and there was my Naomi, and uh, a resident came and greeted me and told me that uh, the head of the hospital was going to talk to me, and I said, do you know what my daughter has? And he said, yes, but um, I'm going to let him tell you. So they sat me down, and I said, before you start, I just want to ask you one question. Does this have anything to do with mental retardation? And they said, no. Well, I said, then I can face anything that comes my way. Because I didn't think I could face a child with mental retardation. I didn't think she was, but I didn't think I could face it if she was. And then they told me a little bit about it, and then they told me there is another child in the city that has the same condition, 
and the mother of that child, we have contacted her. She already came once and saw Naomi, and she's going to come again to meet you and to give you some help on a day-to-day -day basis. And that happened. Um, uh, this woman came, and she was very generous, very kind, Both, and then her husband came also. And uh, they were very positive, and um, they gave me a great deal of support. So anytime Nami would get sick, I would call them. What do I do now? What do I do now? Thanks God for them. Well, and then we, we moved. A year later, we moved to Atlanta. And a major reason for moving to Atlanta was because these people were here in the hospital, knew what to do with a child like Naomi. That was essential. So what was it like once you got here and Naomi started growing up with Ronit? How was the family dynamic? Well, Naomi adored Ronit, and I think that Ronit adored Naomi, but I think that Naomi frustrated her too a great deal because there were so many things that we couldn't do or that had to be interrupted last minute. She couldn't bring a friend if the friend had the slightest cold because it could make Naomi sick. She could not fight it out with Naomi like siblings fight it out with each other because Naomi was so fragile. You did like that and she was on the floor. In her mind she understood all of that but in her heart I, th I think that, that she suffered a great deal. How so? Because I remember one time in particular that she was very excited she was bringing a friend from, from, from school and I had to call and say that the friend couldn't come because because Naomi wasn't well or something like that. Because I told you, I put I said to myself that I was going to have Naomi live. I made, In my mind, that was my goal, that I wasn't going to let her die because many kids like her died. And I said, it's not going to be my kid that's going to die. I'm going to... And I studied everything I could and I devoted hours and hours and hours to Naomi. I tried to devote to Ronit too, but I didn't give her as much as I gave to Naomi. Ronit had two years all to herself, and then when Naomi was born and was so sick, uh, it was tough, and it was particularly tough because there was no family, no one that could give her any, any affection besides Ben and me, and Ben uh, was gone so much of the time with his job at, at the synagogue. Uh, so, well, it was, I think that it was tough, but as they grew older and older, they became, I, I believe that Ronit understood more and more about her sister's condition and the, and the difficulties. And she became a second mother to Naomi. What was it like during the high school years for the girls? Well, Ronit started at the Hebrew Academy and I went to talk to the director of the Hebrew Academy about Naomi and the way he talked about about the fact that she was different I decided that the Hebrew Academy was not for Naomi under any circumstances so I started checking what school what school and I in those days Galloway was a very new school but Galloway seemed like the school for Naomi so we applied and she didn't stay so I said okay Naomi didn't didn't get in, I'm going to teach her. I can teach her. And I will take her twice a, a, a week 
to daycare centers so she will socialize with other children. Well, in, in one of those twice-a-day things, she broke a leg, which we didn't know because she complained about pain. But, um, you know, she had a... Th- she she didn't have the same sense of pain than we do mm-hmm. or of heat and cold so she was prone to burns and to fractures and she would tell she told me where it hurt her i took her to the pediatrician they did x-rays and nothing came out but she wouldn't she wouldn't get off the couch she could could not walk she said it hurt her too much so the so the pediatrician said uh, maybe she has an infection so he he prescribed uh, antibiotics. So after 12 days where there was no improvement, I, th- I thought maybe they did not check all the leg and since she, she does not perceive pain very clearly, they need to x-ray. They did x-ray and there was a big fracture. That leg always was thinner as a result of that fracture because it was treated very late. But she was in a cast from here down with one leg totally in the cast, the other one halfway with a bar in between them. So it wasn't even possible to set her. And Ronin was going to ballet in those days. And somehow I would carry Naomi with the cast. She weighed a ton <laughs> and uh, so that Ronin could go to her ballet class. So um, we did the possible and the impossible to give to each one of them their own. But I do think that Ronit was shortchanged in the sense that there were no more hours in the day and I didn't have any more arms or, or hands to do everything. What was, it, what was it like for Naomi? Because she was... Naomi the- was very much loved by everyone. So Naomi was a happy child. She well, never complained from the day she was born till the day she died. Not once did she complain about why me or what's happening to me. Never, ever, ever. She was... Exemplary doesn't start telling you what it is. She had such a fortitude of spirit, such a courage. Um, She looked uh, life in the eyes. She just did not let anything beat her. Towards the end, she was... She spent three months pretty much blind from her eyes and she would fall constantly because she couldn't see much. And Barbara, her husband, had arranged her medications by alphabetical order. So she had to touch to see which medication she needed to take because she couldn't see the letters. She couldn't work because she couldn't see the computer. She could see some light and what have you, but she couldn't see till they till a doctor was willing to operate on her because we had trouble with having someone operate on her because of anesthesia and hospitals didn't want her as a patient because she was a risk. And she was so courageous that she said, just give me local anesthesia, just give me some drops, nothing will happen to me and just get that um, uh, cataract out because I need to see. And when she saw, we all were crying because she had recovered life. She loved her work. And for three months, she just sat. 
doing nothing. So she couldn't work, she couldn't read, she couldn't walk. Nami was always a very positive person on her condition. I don't think she ever thought she was going to die. She, she was, she defied everything and everyone. You know that Nami was an attorney? Did you yeah. know that? Nami went to college and she, and she lived in college. Yes, she lived in, in Oglethorpe for the four years of undergraduate. And then when she went to Emory for law school, she lived in the graduate student apartments and she took the bus every day, the Emory bus that took her to the law school. And when she finished there, uh, she and Shana both lived in the same place. Uh, they were looking for, for apartments to live. Shana had just come into the city. And I took them, I can't tell you to how many places, till we found this place, and each one of them rented an apartment separately, and and then Nami got a dog, and Shana got a dog, and Nami started working. And she worked for 21 years in the same place, working for the disabled, being an advocate for the disabled. She did not let me fuss that much on her. I try not to. I We talked every day. She called me every single day of her life since she was about 21, 22, when she started driving, which she didn't do very well because she crashed many times. But uh, that was, again, a challenge. There was uh, one school, one instructor that said he couldn't teach her how to drive, and I said to her, don't worry, we're going to find an instructor that will be able to teach you how to drive. And then she demolished my car, and she demolished several of the cars we bought her. <laughs> and I kept on saying, that's okay, we'll just look for another car. <laughs> because I understood. Uh, that her independence was was paramount. She could not be kept. There was no Uber in those days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uber might have been the solution because Uber is not so expensive, but there was no Uber. And of course, when she had to go out of town, there were all kinds of drivers that were paid and took her. She went throughout the state of Georgia because she had clients everywhere and she fought with every nursing home everywhere. She hated nursing homes because she said that they were terrible places for older people and she said she would never allow us to go to a nursing home. So I always was worried that if she lived at the time when we might have to be around in a nursing home, she was going to sacrifice us on the idea that you cannot go to a nursing home because they're terrible. She was adamant about that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've worked around them, and it's all dependent upon the staff. It really is. Well, I think that if I had to go to a nursing home, I would be happy to go to the Jewish home. Yeah. They treat their patients very well there. So how, how did your life change once the girls were out of the house? Well, I was working. I, I was a teacher. I worked full time. So I just had a little bit more time, and Ben and I enjoyed that extra time. We did more things together, and we started traveling a little bit together. But I still cooked everything for Naomi. Every meal she ever had, I had cooked for her. 
because when Naomi got into trying to cook, she would burn herself and she would end up sick. So I didn't want that. So I, 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 I cooked for her and I brought her food and her freezer was always full of food and I brought vegetables and fruit and she went out for supper many times. She had some, some dear friends that she had still a friend from high school, several friends from undergraduate until today, still get in touch and talk about Naomi and some from uh, law school. So she was not all alone and then she met Barbara and of course that was I think for her it was love at first sight. They 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 were married for ten and a half years and I have never seen a couple that loved each other more. So I wanna ask you some some random questions. Okay. So you met you mentioned before that you studied philosophy. Yes. What is your take on, on the ideologies of, of existence and life and things like spiritual things? Because you mentioned in the beginning that the island that you came from, there's yeah. all these stories surrounding it. I am, um, I don't believe I believe in God. There aren't many reasons or many proofs of God's existence. And I don't buy the arguments that God works in mysterious ways and God is not here to help you because all the prayers we do are please God who are so who are this way and that way I don't believe that the kinds of killings that have occurred throughout history could have been witnessed by a, an all powerful and good God and um, that he could have allowed that I think that we are part of a of the universe, which is blind to morality and values. The values, if we want to talk about something divine in the sense of being something good, something positive, independent of a being, I would say that there is some div something divine in the way we emerged as people. About the story of creation, I don't believe it. In terms Overall, of the Bible or Torah? In terms of Bible, I think that they're an allegory or a metaphor of what happened in terms of progressive uh, stages of to create life. I think that that all probably is true, but not in a day, not in a year, not in a million years, okay? In that there is a mechanical law of life and that the universe, the world that we know, our star started as a start and a finish. But I think that there has always been, that there is infinity, that we recycle, that we are recyclable. Do you ever experience synchronicity? Have you ever? I don't know what, what do you mean by synchronicity? When things line up uh, in your daily life, when something happens that triggers a memory or an emotion of this is too incredible to be a coincidence. I have done some of that. I don't. I cannot come. I don't remember any off the top of my head. But I have. Yes, and I also I know that I have this faculty, this power of sometimes imagining things that there are some elements that I know about. And 
then I, I come up with a conclusion based on those elements that is kind of far-fetched, but it's true. I almost think that beyond all of the stories that we know of science or the stories that we know of people's experiences and all the cosmos and the black holes and all the way gravity works, I think that there's nothing more powerful than a human mind. Because none of that stuff would exist without this. No, that thing, the, the universe exists not because of this. The universe was. But we have the power to try to understand that universe. And we are the only ones. The human mind is the only one that can do that because there are many different forms of life. But we are the only ones that have the ability to, to change some things in our surroundings. Because I, I just I think of the mindset with you and Naomi where, where you said, you said, I'm not going to let her die. No. And that, cre- that reinforced a, an intent within yourself that you, you adapted reality based on your will. Yes, and I think that any doctor that ever treated Naomi would tell you about my importance in Naomi's life. There was one doctor that once even wrote a, I was going out of the country with her, and I said, please write something so that in case she gets sick, they will know what to do with her. So he wrote a letter, Naomi Walker suffers this, 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 that. Her mother, so-and-so, is the greatest expert on this condition. Please listen to her and do what she tells you to do. And yeah, I was totally, I, I um, became an advocate for Naomi when, uh, when she was little and then when she was very sick in the hospital, which happened all the time, I was her advocate. And then when Naomi was fine, she could advocate for herself. But I advocated for her and I didn't care what doctors or anyone else said to me because my do- daughter was number one importance. So she came first. I didn't care to be nice or to be this or that. I called everyone into account. So when you think about fact, because you'll get these opinions from these experts, these physicians that will tell you that they think something needs to be treated with Naomi this way, but you you definitely disagree because you've had experience in this with yeah, her for so I, long. I, I, I equate that to the same way as trying to understand the philosophy of existence, right? I don't think it can be described by anybody for anyone else. And when I start to think about my place and your place, it's something like, I think about consciousness when you wake up in the morning. First thing is you open your eyes and then all of a sudden you're with you again. And it's something that nobody else will ever experience. Everyone experiences in his own way, I would say. I mean, no one can experience what you experience in the same way because no one else is you. The, the fact is, we must confront ourselves all the time. And we have got to learn to be the, our strictest judges, our best judges. Which means that sometimes we must be kind to ourselves too. Because we do a lot of things that are not what people would say right or kind. But we must be, we must be able to forgive ourselves sometimes too because we are not part of the mechanical universe. We are not part of it. That's right. We are not mechanical. We have share much of it because our body is mechanical in a way. You but our mind allows us 
through chemistry, whatever our composition is, we have the capability of changing ourselves, of looking into ourselves, of feeling differently, of changing behaviors, of influencing others or being influenced by others. And all of that is an intangible that no other being can ever have. Huh. How old are you today? I'm 76. 76. When you think of trials or tribulations or struggles that you've been through, what, what comes to mind? Naomi. What about things that you're most proud of? Naomi. I, I decided very early that Naomi was going to do everything she could possibly do and that we were not going to protect her so much that she would be helpless or only dependent on us that she had to be her own person and that we were going to help her become that that's why although I was petrified about her driving I I didn't want to her to give up that I, I was going to find someone that would teach her and when she wanted to go to college and live in college I was dying because I didn't think she was going to spend the first night there on her own but I had to let her and when she was little I didn't go with her many times to the what you call it the parks with the games because I was petrified of her falling or what have you but Ben went and that was fine with me I could accept the fact that she fell I just couldn't I, I couldn't I didn't think I had the heart to see her fall but I wasn't going to stop her from doing those things. So she was a, she was um, a gutsy, strong in inside herself. She was so strong, so strong. And uh, I think I had some something to do with that. I mean, I don't take away from her, but I think that um, I had something to do with it. So so when I think about other people that might be wondering how to create meaning for themselves in their lives and your story uh, it's almost like uh, against your own will you were provided uh, this child that you you were attached to and, and you grew with and, and was challenged with and, and succeeded with it wasn't something that you had asked for of course not I would never ask for it. that's why and there that there was a big disagreement between me and Naomi on one area See, I believe in pro-choice, and Naomi did not. Because I believe that Naomi felt that believing in pro-choice was denying her own existence. Mm. You see how complicated this is? It, well, it makes sense to, to say like if somebody in her condition, if their parents would have known that they I would have not had her. They wouldn't have had her. There's no question, but of course, it's very easy to say after the fact. I mean, I had her and I loved her with all my heart. The first thought I have every day when I wake up is Naomi. And the last thought is Naomi. But without having lived with Naomi, if I had been told before she was born that she had a very serious condition, I would have said, let's have an abortion. I would have, I would have had an abortion. Uh, 
I said without shame or anything. I think it was a, a very difficult life uh, for all of us. I, I wouldn't change it once I have lived it, but it's... Um, I, I understand exactly what you're saying, and I could see how it would be difficult for Naomi to interpret that being... Naomi, Naomi, Naomi would uh, never agree with me on that because that would have meant denying every child that is disabled the opportunity of a life. And to her, that was totally wrong. And I think she's a better person. Ah, so I guess I get, yeah, I don't. I, I you want wanna, philosophy here? That's I mean, we could go for days on this one. Like I, I see where Naomi's coming from, and I see where you're coming from too. But I'm leaning towards towards your side on it because I don't I don't think life knows what it's missing out on if it's not created. Do you get what I'm saying? Like I don't think that you're leaning then to Naomi's way of thinking, not mine. How so? Well, I'm, how so? Because you are giving validity to the fact that every life is worth living. No, I'm, I'm saying that conception. Yes. From the gestation period from yes. three months to nine months. Yes. And then even further than that, I don't believe that a, that a human being becomes consciously aware until like a year and a half, two years yeah. minimum. So what I'm saying is to end a life that is not self-aware... I don't see it as a negative thing if it's a choice of somebody. Well, I don't see it as a negative either. I mean, I think that I will tell you this. I'll go further. I can I can speak for me. I cannot speak for my humankind. I don't think that it is important whether you are a natural parent or a parent that has adopted or because I believe that the relationship between children and parents is established through the relationship, through the living together, through the getting to know each other. So uh, consciousness, like you talk about, well, they say that fetuses can feel and experience pain and all of that, but it is different. I mean, we're we're clay molded by the universe, right? But until we don't we don't exist without the influence of the universe. Exactly. We come we come with something. We're always adapting and and being influenced by all stimulation in yes. our environment, and that's why I agree with you. Is I, I don't necessarily believe in the in the need for lineage, and I'll tell you because if you look at life as sprouting from the oceans and, and slowly evolving and, and over time, you. you begin to notice that, that literally all of us are cousins from the from the homo sapien 200,000 years ago who had a yes. brain that started mating We're but all some of us are closer cousins than others yeah yeah <laughs> and and so in a sense when tribe dynamics start happening is is certain families uh developed traits that were uh applicable to them like for my abramowitzes you know we've got the height We've got the, my father's jovial. They've got an ease sense of humor type thing going on. And my mom's side is a little different. They're a little more stoic. They're more conservative. Well, you know, Jewish people are very open yeah. to expressing how they feel. Exactly. It's, it's, it's in, ingrained in us since day one. We sit around a table as a family and we all speak. And it's very democratic. It doesn't matter that you're a child. 
everyone has equal right to express himself or herself. And I believe that families that are not Jewish or Italian or Greek uh, are by far more reserved. I recall my students at, at the school I taught, they even talked to their parents, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Uh, there was a certain formality. They, they were not, I think, encouraged to always express their inner thoughts. They were encouraged to have a nice behavior, to be gentlemen or gentle ladies, whatever. And we could care less about that as Jews. No, I shouldn't say we could care less. We care less. Yeah, I mean, I... I <clears throat> we are very spontaneous, very open. Yeah, and there's different sects to it, too, in terms of, like, how orthodox or conservative yes. a family tribe is. But when I start to think about, like, why that happened or how it happened, and I start to understand, I guess, the the spread of, of humankind across the planet and how we kind of, like, diverted ourselves into different areas everything seems to be neutralized when i recognize the fact that without the oxygen of the atmosphere without the ability to move or or relocate ourselves or to think none of this would be possible and when i when i think about adoption versus having a child i almost feel like I don't know. I just I don't feel like there's much of a difference between you and I or me and somebody I meet on the street because we're experiencing the same thing. Well, I think that nature versus na nurture. Nurture is terribly important. Terribly, terribly important. It's what happens to that child once he's out of the woman's womb that makes a difference. It's true that if you are a pregnant person and do not feed yourself well and what have you, you are putting your child on, on a disadvantage. But the genes that the child has, you cannot change. We haven't gotten to that point yet. I'm not saying it won't be possible. There is a medical engineering. There are things you can do in vitro, not in vitro, in, a, in a, when, when a woman is pregnant, like uh, fix maybe some heart conditions or other conditions. It's been done already for several years. But you're basically, you come to the world, like you said, like clay. Uh, each, each clay is different from the other. There are none that are the same. Maybe twins, identical twin, twins have that. But the environment is essential. And I think that we are divided as human beings into these two schools of thought. I had a colleague that was a chemistry and biology teacher and he believed in this mechanical, everything was mechanical and blind, that we had nothing mattered much. I couldn't have disagreed more with him because how do you explain then that people that are in the same home have received more or less the same treatment at home? The minute they're out of the house, they encounter different experiences and they end up being totally different people. So when I try to think about philosophy, I really think about the story of the universe, of something happened and an expansion started and it's going infinitely in all directions and gravity is happening and everything's in constant motion. 
And then I start to think about the conditions that were set on our planet that allowed for a sun just the perfect distance to create life to begin to sprout in the oceans and to crawl out onto the land. You are still on the on the mechanical world there. Exactly. I, I almost think that everything is mechanical to the point of self-awareness. So in a sense, we're in this clockwork type organism that is the living universe, but each person's mind is an entity in and of itself. Yes, and of in course. essence, I would say that God begins and ends with a person's ability to realize that they're awake. Either God or I, I always say that I have great faith. I'm a person of great faith. And what is my faith? My faith is in the human being. I think the human being is an incredible entity. And I have total faith. When doctors would tell me, you have to trust in God for now, I, mean, I would say, no, I have to trust in human beings. Right. That's, that's the main difference. Some people put their trust in God. I didn't pray to God. I prayed that the human being would continue uh, developing scientifically and this and this and that. But I also believe that it is up to the human being to act morally or immorally. And that's why I don't like using the word God. Because it separates responsibility from you, from us. I don't think that in Judaism that is so, Adam. How so? I'll explain to you how so. Because Judaism, in terms of theology, I think Judaism has some very good ideas. I could never be anything else but Jewish. And this idea is that we are born with a, cap a, a capacity for good and for bad, which are the two strong forces when it comes to ethics, ethical, the ethical aspect of life, and that we as people struggle with these two elements that are within us, and that it is that no one but us, ourselves, have the responsibility to work in such a way so that the element, the good, the positive element is victorious over the negative element, because we do not believe in original sin or anything like that. We believe that changes come from us, not from outside. We don't believe that if we go and confess our misdeeds and we are given a punishment of praying so many times this or doing this or this or that, that will absolve us in the uh, eyes of God. God, even in Judaism, God cannot absolve you from the sins or, or terrible things you do to other human beings. Only the, those human beings can absolve you of that. God can only absolve you, according to Judaism, from mistakes you have made in terms of ritual. Okay? So when it comes to facing other human beings and our behavior, we are on our own. We were given the possibility of acting well or acting bad. So it's up to us. That's why we're individuals. And I like that. And I think that that is something... I can live with, um, can live by. I don't need to have God mixed up in this. I, you see? Yeah, it's humanism. Well, uh, there is a lot of existentialism in my way of thinking. I think that each one of us has his own reality and his own uh, circumstance. And how are you going to react to that is who makes that ma what makes you who you are, not how others act. So if you were going to tell somebody uh, who is finally realizing this way of thinking and you know, the way of perceiving things, 
and wants to assume responsibility for themselves to create a life for themselves what type of advice would you give them tell me again ask me again the question please say it was Micah or Sam or Kira yes and and I know you know my 29 years have been you know my first my from the age 20 to 25 was very difficult for me in the sense that I was doing things I'm not so proud of and I was experimenting and and drugs and alcohol and I was and I was risking myself and, and and not doing the best of things because I didn't know any of the stuff we were talking about you know I, I kind of lived life according to my circumstances and just hoped for the best I think something happens when a person wakes up from that and starts to realize that the way that they're perceiving life is a byproduct of what they've been told and it's up to them to decide what they want to believe in and what they want to do yes but but you have to start from somewhere you have to have a baseline okay and that's what you were told so a lot of what you believe that's why children usually are the mirrors of their parents uh, when when a kid a little kid talks to you about Trump or yeah, or Clinton they're talking what they heard their parents talk because there is no one that has more power in their eyes than that of the parents I think things start changing as you become a teenager because actually we don't have I believe that in terms of brain development not I believe I know that in terms of brain development that area of the brain where the capacity of evaluating things is doesn't develop till you are a young adult so I think that the physical changes that come in puberty plus this capacity of starting to evaluate everything work hand in hand and make you start becoming who you are and sometimes you are perfectly happy with what you have been taught and sometimes you're not and most times I would think it's a mixture of both you take some things we never dismiss everything it's like it's like um, a sifter in a sifter you sift a lot of things but some of the flour stays there okay and then you put something else and then you put something else and hopefully hopefully no matter how old you are you still can have that sifter sift something <laughs> yeah yeah because nothing really changes other than basically what I choose to like start to accept or... that's why I told you about teenagers and, and these recordings because I think that teenagers are in such stage of fluctuation and turmoil that what they think is probably not at all what, what the way they will live their lives because they're testing everything and they are not sure of anything and they're rebelling against everything because they feel so insecure of who, who they are and it would be a wonderful gift to give teenagers that possibility of having this so that as they grow older they can see where they came from and who they have become I agree with you about when I start to think about my own experience as a young adult a teenager the total inability to see myself in any given moment like I had no idea but you're thinking a great deal Adam you should feel very proud of your growth 
now I am, and I was then, but a lot of my, and this is the thing about being a teenager, is like you're really observing people and thinking about how they're thinking more so than how you're thinking. Well, I, I think that I would put it a little differently. I would say that you're observing people and you're, I used to say I don't ever want to be like that. Hmm. Yeah. I know that since very young that I wanted to be a friend to my children, that I would do anything and everything possible to, to be a friend, that I wanted my children not to ever feel they couldn't talk to me about certain things, that they should feel free to talk to me about anything and everything, that I would not pass a moral judgment on them. That was important to me. I, I knew that from very young in my life. Why now? Now, why do you think that that is important? Because like, just, just, because I didn't have your... that in in my own growing up. I I was not free to talk about issues of sexuality, for example, uh-huh. of intermarriage or anything like that, because those were taboo subjects. Do you think that's important for all people to be able to have that yes. capability? Yes. How come? Because I think that those are important aspects of life and you cannot deny them like if they don't exist. And because uh, you should be finding out about those things from those that love you the most, you should be able to feel that you can go back to them and consult with them and pour your heart out rather than being concerned that they may not judge you like you would like to be judged or that they may be punishing or that they may be too moralistic or what have you or what have you i i think that those are important things i when i when i taught i wanted my students to be able to come to me for everything and uh, i was star teacher one year at the school i taught and the 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 woman that chose me as her star teacher she was a star student of the school she was brilliant particularly in things like mathematics and what have you. And when she was interviewed about how she chose, she said, I have very many good teachers in the school, but I was a person that she could come to and talk about anything and everything whenever, and that I never passed judgment on her. So I think that that is... You, uh, I don't. I think that if you talk to Ronit, she would tell you she passed judgment on me all the time, which I did probably. But I also tried to make her feel that she could tell me. Okay, so that is something that I think is important. Me too. I think it's important because I think a lot of time we get hung up on the words that we're saying in these. And in, in the in the topics and the issues we want to explore, we think that somehow in in the exploration of that, it defines us as a person. So in a sense, if the topic is abortion, and I'm trying and I'm having a discussion about the pros and cons of abortion, somehow it it's it's creating a, a identity for myself. I think I I have a problem with when I speak or when I express myself, like I, it's a separate entity from actually who I am. Like the, the process. It's- it, it should be you. Well, the process of it is is a trying to come to a better understanding of who I am. Anytime, that's why you need people. Because exactly. when you need people... because when I you can't need... go freely into whatever topic or dialogue I want to explore... But you cannot do that with everyone. I you have you have to You have to know that too, that you cannot do that with everyone. Because not everyone is going to accept you 
going like that and not everyone is ready. Well, which is why I think it's important that we have people that we can talk to that we can do that with. I think that's honestly, I think that's why therapy is a thing is because it's a safe space for that to happen when a lot of the world doesn't operate that way. Yeah. But you know what? I think that most times you don't even need therapy. You just need a very good friend or all, a very good that's listener. That's all you really need. And one of my assumptions or one of my theories is that, and this is just based on my own experience, is that the process of expression for me allows me to better understand these things to relieve me from it in pursuit of understanding something else. And then, and it's all tied with who I am of like, the issues I was talking about last year, I understand so thoroughly, I don't need to go into them right now anymore. Well, I am very impressed with you, Adam. Huh. I really am. Thanks. Hey, Ben, where are you going? Uh, I'm going to the post office. Don't, 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 because I think we are kind of winding yeah. down here. Yeah, we're finished, we're almost done. Yeah, I, 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 just, I have to, to do some other things. Yeah, this was just a fun little. I like I like talking about all this stuff. I don't know if I'll, I'll you actually can put you, it. You can come back anytime you want. Oh, great! Thanks. Okay. So uh, yeah, let's. Close. I am very happy to have gotten to know something about you. I didn't know you, besides your name and who you, where you come from, and what have you. And I do <laughs> like to look at people in their eyes, and I like, and I very much like to talk deeply with people. Me too. And I don't find always people that want to do that. Yeah, I mean, honestly, everything I do is like to create this. I like, I like this. I like talking. I like really, I like really knowing somebody. But I'm also like you. Like I'm all about pattern recognition and coming to a better conclusion. Like when I did Ben last week, the thing that I realized about Ben and mine was like I correlated my experience growing yes. up to his. Yes. I was given unlimited choices and I had everything I wanted, never an empty stomach. And of course I go into this kind of destructive uh, way of, of living because I always had everything I wanted. I didn't know what hunger felt like or anything. While Ben was opposite. He wasn't given a choice. He didn't know. He didn't know anything that he could, he didn't have the opportunities that I had. So his, his mind and his, his presence. And look how good he came out. He came out great. And I had to, it's almost like I had to create turmoil for myself to give myself a purpose when he was, he was provided it. There, I think that there are some things that we will never understand why they happened. Yeah. You must have been at the right time in the wrong place mm -hmm. and making the wrong choices, maybe influenced by the wrong people. We cannot, we cannot explain ourselves altogether whatever but we what we do know is that we made the choices and then we made the choices to change course or not to change course that's why i love this whole way of thinking because it give it, it, it gives freedom and liberation from your past to say in this moment now i'm choosing to be better or i'm choosing to do something different and that's why I always hated the traditional Jewish communities, which you have not experienced. But those that were very close to Europe, like first, second generation, they would start, so who are your parents? What do they do? Where do you live? All those things gave people an idea. Rich, poor, important person, not important person. I want them for my son or daughter, I don't want them for my son or daughter. 
And I saw that in, in the Jewish community in Chile a lot. Yeah. Because most of the people were immigrants, came from little villages in Europe, didn't have, they, you were kind of typed and you were your par your parents' child or your grandparents' child. You didn't have any identity as you. You were not seen by you, but by where you came from. And that I will never allow anyone, I will never put that into my into my way of approaching people. I believe, in that sense, I'm totally American. I believe in the self-made person. I don't blame parents for kids. I don't blame kids for parents, except in, with certain exceptions. Because if parents are destructive, chances are that their kids are going to be a little bit screwed up. And people shouldn't have children if they don't want to be good people. Adam wanted to ask you or, or do something for you. What was it, Adam? Didn't you want something from Ben or wanted to tell no, him I just something? I to say hello. Oh, okay. <laughs> How are you? Uh, ben, did you want to give him Rebecca? Is he giving you a hard time? No, no, no. No, okay. No, I, I was going to give him the phone yes. number of Sarah Gittes. Why don't you do that? Oh, yeah, what, what was it that she was she, doing? She did interviews of survivors. She tried to make a living out of it. I think she gave up. I, 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 she, she may want to direct you or offer you guidance oh, or, uh, oh, are you, you know, I told her that what you were doing, interviewing here, and mm -hmm. she may be able to guide you in some way. Oh, you talked you talk to Sarah about about this? Uh, yeah, I told Oh, her. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's why. Okay, one. okay. Said, can, can he call you to ask for advice? She says yes. I think I have it downstairs. She's, she was born in Peru. She's a smart cookie. Well, let's close it up. This was awesome. Thanks a lot for doing this with me. My pleasure. Uh, yeah. my, I am so happy I got to know you a little bit. Really. Me too. This oh, is a neat you. kid. Huh? A neat kid. It sure is. I told him to, to meet a Jewish girl. That's what I wanted <laughs> to do. And I'm trying to find them. You know, I took your advice. You I, I broke up with the... Me and the girl broke up. I'm sorry to to have done that to you. No, you were right. Because uh, I was listening back to it when I was editing our conversation, and I said, "Listen, I don't know what to do. I don't don't waste I, don't waste her time. Exactly. Don't waste your time. Exactly. If you're not serious, there's no point in continuing." And, and I know. felt bad about it because I didn't want to make her sad or anything. But you you were the one who said you said that's how it. it I was hope better you find for both somebody, somebody you love and. And you don't love someone automatically, Ben. Loving know, me takes that. time. Yeah. I went with a girl in Tampa for about four or five years. And then I met her and that was it. <laughs> and that's the end of that episode. So so, yeah. so, did, so what happened to the girl in Tampa? I just want to know because I got two sides of the story. We, she actually, you know. we met her. She came to live in Dahlonega with her with her with her husband. She got married to a Navy guy and they had several children. They lived in Israel. They adopted a bunch of children with disabilities. And we met them in a restaurant. Ruth and I met her and her husband, Bob. Unfortunately, they're both dead now. We met them in a restaurant and uh, we had a good time. Do you remember that? Yes, of course. It wasn't so long ago. <laughs> It wasn't so long ago. I don't know how she got in touch with you through was someone it else. No. 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 
we both went separate ways. I mean, but I think not, that if he had married her, he would have been divorced. I probably. Would, yes, <laughs> I, I mean would. it. And she's right about that. Ben, can you turn on the light, love? It feels like so dark here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. It's, oh, well, it's raining already. It is. It's going to get worse. Wet. Yes. So, um, okay. What you want to go? Adam, can I give you some cookies to take with you? <laughs> I'll take these two right here. Why don't you take all of them? No, I'm, I got. I don't have enough hands. Here, 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 here. You put them in the napkin, join, my friend. Join the okay, I'll put Jewish them in the napkin. Can people. I give you more? Even? No, this will this will work. There are lots of yeah, there are They're lots good. of areas that I wonder if that mosaic group still works. Should I take him? No, you cannot take him because if they see him in the car, they may do something. You know. I take him to to outside. Oh, I, I don't know. Ask him if he needs to go. Ask him. You want yeah. to go, Ochi? 